I appreciate that. Great, uh, great truth in that song. That's the attitude that we should all have, isn't it, about the Word of God, approaching it like a mirror and really wanting God to do a work of transformation in our lives. Well, we've certainly enjoyed our time with you all, our fellowship, and uh, appreciate your hospitality and your kindness to us. And uh, Titus and I had a pretty good day today, although we spent a long time doing math. So there is hope that tomorrow there's no math. Tomorrow he could be off of math, maybe, if we get a couple more pages done after church. So you, you pray for him. This is like, you know, I'm a taskmaster because I have to go home and report to my wife about <laughs> progress on math and make sure that I keep him up to speed. So if you've ever schooled your children, then you know how that goes. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 tonight. We've been talking about being a follower of Jesus Christ, one of his disciples. And I want to continue that study this evening. And you pray for me to have the Lord's mind about the rest of the week and exactly what God wants. But uh, I suspect we'll continue on this theme right on through Friday if the Lord allows us. But tonight I want to take a little bit of time. You know, we've talked about how uh, there is a need for us to surrender some things and, and we need to follow wholeheartedly after the Lord. We've talked about what God does in us uh, when that takes place and, and how He begins to uh, show us a sense of our purpose and where He's taking us, what He's up to in our lives. And then He, I believe, begins to roll back the the blinders from our eyes and he shows us where he's working in the world around us and he invites us to be a part of what he is actively doing. And, you know, as I was thinking about this last night as we were going back to the hotel room, as followers of Christ, as disciples, we are following after Jesus. And we know that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So presuming that Jesus still is seeking and saving that which is lost, if we are following Jesus, we will also be involved in the business of seeking and seeing saved that which is lost. This is our, this is our calling. This is what God wants to do in our lives. And I trust you were challenged with that thought last night. As we come now to John chapter 13, I want to direct your attention to verses 34 and 35 in particular tonight. And I want to take the next few moments and address the companionship of the disciple. And we want to talk about the fact that as disciples, God has not called us to be lone rangers. He's not called us to be just me and nobody else. But he has a purpose of us being involved in fellowshipping with other believers. And particularly, we know that the Scriptures designed for that to take place within the New Testament church. And we'll read our text in just a, a moment, but I want you to think for just a minute about the men that Jesus first called to be disciples. If you're familiar with those guys, then you know that they didn't always get along with each other the best. There were times when they had some squabbles and some disagreements. Uh, They had some jockeying for position. We're told that of the 12 who were called, 
by the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one whose name was Matthew or Levi, and he was a tax collector. Evidently, he was loyal, at least to some degree, to the Roman government, enough to work for them and collect taxes for them. And there was another man who was called, uh, his name was Simon the Zealot. And presumably, he was called Simon the Zealot because he was zealous for the nation of Israel. And could you imagine these two guys being put into the same assembly, and now they've got to learn to get along with each other and love each other. It's interesting how God chose the men who would make up that first congregation. He chose men who were unique, men who were different, and men who sometimes didn't get along with each other. Even in the Gospels, as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we see the interactions between these disciples we notice that they didn't always get along perfectly with each other. And there were times that Jesus had to address some sort of disagreement or problem that had sprung up between those disciples. And tonight we want to consider why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he instead choose a bunch of men that were just very similar to each other, and would always get along with each other perfectly and never have any difficulties so that there could be perfect unity. I wonder why God did that. As we think about today, and let's fast forward to today before we read our text, something that I run into a lot, probably you run into a lot, it has become so popular in our generation to talk about being a Christian but, you know, I'm just not into church. I'm just not into organized religion. You know, I worship God, and I'm a Christian, and I'm a Bible believer, but, you know, I really don't have to, I don't really need to go to church, and I go once in a while, you know, but I'm telling you there's so many good teachers online, and I get all of my teaching through the Internet or on the television, and, and I've got a whole list of people that I listen to, and, and uh, honestly... You know, when they name some of the people they listen to, you think, well, you know, they're hearing a few good things in there. They're, they're probably hearing the gospel. They're probably hearing uh, some, some good truth. In fact, we, and I'm not against uh, podcasting or, or live streaming services. I think you all do that here. We do that in our ministry, and it's a tremendous benefit for some of the folks who aren't able to make it out to services, some of our shut-ins. Even some of our missionaries around the world are able to tune into our services at times and participate in those and keep up with what's going on, see some of the brethren back home, and they enjoy that, you know. So it's a good thing, but it has limits, doesn't it? And, and we, our situation is maybe a little different than your situation here. During COVID, we live-streamed for about 12 weeks, and uh, it was some of the hardest 12 weeks of my ministry because preaching to an auditorium with almost no one in it except for somebody in the sound booth, my family, somebody back in the video room and somebody who played the piano, you know, that was challenging. It was challenging to do that. And then when I got sick and stayed home and we switched to live streaming during that time frame for a couple of services because, well, we had to. And uh, I sat at home, and I watched the services at home. And I'll tell you, it's just not the same. It's not the same as being there 
with our brethren. I'll never forget the first Sunday that we came back into our building. We had parking lot services for a while, and then we all gathered up around the front of the parking lot till it started getting too hot. And last year, beginning of July, the first Sunday, I said, we're going back in the building. And I'll never forget, it was, it was just such a precious time. It was a wonderful time to be there together. And in fact, I think the net result was, as a church, we came out of that time stronger, more knit together, because we appreciated what maybe we hadn't appreciated like we ought to before that time. We appreciated the fellowship, the face-to-face dynamic that is necessary in the Christian life. It is true that you can get online and you can hear a lot of good teaching and preaching. It is true that there are even some decent programs maybe on the, on the television airwaves where you can hear some decent preaching and you can hear some good instruction. There's, there's, things that are, there's resources that are out there, but none of that will ever take the place of God's design for the New Testament church. I even heard about a, uh, a, a group that decided during all this time, you know, they were just going to start an online church. And so instead of, you know, this way they don't have to rent a building or anything like that, and so they can just spread the word around, and we're going to have Zoom church, and we can meet with people all around the world, and that'll be the new paradigm of ministry, the Zoom church. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think the Lord will be pleased. Uh, There are certain aspects of church life that can never be replicated online. And part of that is what we're going to talk about tonight. You see, it's important as believers that we would have, I'm going to, I'm going to use the word covenant on purpose, covenant relationships with other disciples. Because a covenant is more than a contract. A covenant is more than uh, an agreement. A covenant is a very serious since where we enter into a bond of fellowship with others. Marriage is a covenant. And actually, I believe that in church membership, God places the members within a body, and it is his his intention for those members then to fellowship with one another. uh, He's put them together for a reason. So go to our text now in John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus again is addressing his disciples in the upper room. He's preparing them for his soon coming crucifixion and all of the events that would transpire after that. And he says to them in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Tonight we want to talk about the importance of loving one another as disciples of Christ, particularly as uh, you folks, as members of this assembly. There is a responsibility, there is an imperative to love one another. We notice, first of all, in this passage that there is a mandate which is given to love. Jesus phrased it this way, He called it a new commandment. And the word commandment means it is an expectation. It is an imperative. It is that which is expected by God. 
This was a new commandment, but understand the reason that it's a new commandment. It's not new that God wants us to love one another, but there was a new imperative in the sense that up to this time, what has held these men together is really Jesus, his physical presence. He could say, hey guys, what have you been talking about over there? I, I heard a little discussion going on. Let's, let's work this out. And he could speak truth into that situation. He could resolve that situation. He could bring it to a head and he could deal with that, that situation. But Jesus is getting ready to leave now. And these men are going to be responsible to take the initiative in loving one another. And we'll talk about what that love means in just a moment. But Jesus is trying to encourage them. He's admonishing them. He's saying it will be so imperative from this day forward that you love one another. You are going to need one another more than you have ever needed one another before because he knew what was coming. These disciples were going to need a supernatural love for one another, a kind of love that can really only come from the Holy Spirit of God. Their love would need to go beyond the physical love that men are capable of demonstrating to one another. And it would need to go to the place of loving people who are not always easy to love. You know, in our flesh, naturally, we find it fairly simple to love people who love us back. To love people who return to us that which we are looking for, uh, honestly, Apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit of God, we are all selfish lovers. We love people in a way to get what we want out of them, and if we don't get what we want out of them, then we find it very difficult, if not impossible, to love them. But the kind of love that Jesus is talking about is not that kind of love. The kind of love Jesus is talking about is the self-sacrificing love that Jesus is known for. It is that kind of love which gives of itself, expecting that perhaps we will get nothing in return. Supernatural, spiritual love, that which is described, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, using the word charity, is the kind of love that God wants to have evidenced among the members of His assemblies. So Jesus says, I've given you this new commandment. This new commandment, he said, is that ye love one another. That ye love one another. So when we think about loving one another, I want you to think about who Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 13. It's a very narrow group of people, actually. He's speaking to the 11 disciples because by this time he has dismissed Judas Iscariot. Has, he has gone to go and do his business. And Jesus is speaking to the 11 apostles, the 11 disciples who are gathered there in the upper room, and he says to these men, as a New Testament church, as an assembly, I'm giving you this mandate to love one another. Now, I don't mean to take away from the opportunities that we have to show love and care for other brethren from other assemblies or other places, but what Jesus is referring to in John 13, 34, and 35 is especially pertinent to a New Testament church, to an assembly of believers who have covenanted together, to, they've put their lives together, and the Holy Spirit has brought them together through regeneration, through scriptural baptism, with the purpose of propagating the gospel, uh, of doing the, the will of the Father on the earth, 
as an assembly, this is who they are. And God says to these individuals, I want you to love one another. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it's easier to love people who are far away than people that are near? Sometimes it is. And, and, and I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, people who are far away, people who are, are at an arm's distance, are not people who are usually in your business. They're not usually people who are going to even uh, have any sort of a problem with you or rebuke you or anything like, I mean, unless they're just particularly nosy, they're, they're generally not going to feel the liberty to, to interject themselves into your situation of life. And so because of that, it's kind of easy to love them, to feel warm fuzzies about them because you've never had any real controversy with them. But now people that are near, that's a different thing, isn't it? When I, when I do premarital counseling, I try to prepare couples for the fact that once they move in with each other, after they've shared their vows of marriage and they've moved into the same house, things might get a little more interesting because you're going to find out things about each other that even though you're in love and you've been going together for a while, it just never has occurred to you to, to find out these sorts of things. And they're not the sort of things that you normally would talk about or ask. And, and then you get living together in the same house and you find out that she hangs the toilet paper the wrong way. And every time you go in the bathroom, it bothers you and you've got to flip it around. And she comes in and it bothers her and she flips it around. And pretty soon you're having a problem about some stupid thing like that. And Maybe it wasn't which way the toilet paper hung, but if you're married, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the way that when you put two lives together and you start rubbing shoulders with each other and you're in the same house and you're spending a lot of time together and all of a sudden you can start to have some friction. Now that friction, this is what I tell young couples getting ready for marriage, that friction is not necessarily bad. Don't be afraid of conflict because conflict is something that God can use in a particular way in your life to bring you into the image of Christ. And you know the, the exact same thing happens in a New Testament church. If we're not careful, we get in the idea that, well, I want to, I want to be around people and, and I want to be around people who make me feel good. And it is nice to be around people who make you feel good, but sometimes we need to feel bad. Sometimes we need to deal with some things in our life. And we're going to come back to this a little bit later in the message. But I want you to understand that Jesus is expecting here in verse 34 that they would love one another. He's commanding it. He's stating it as an imperative. He's saying this must be the case. And tonight, in case you're wondering, in case I, I think you probably already know this, I suspect your pastor has taught about it. Love is not a feeling. Love is a decision. Love is a choice that we make. And we are capable through the power of the Holy Spirit of loving the way that God wants us to love. This is such a serious issue that in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 20, the scripture says this, If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? The passage is very clear. If you're incapable of loving a brother, 
then there's something wrong, very deeply wrong, in your spiritual life. And it could be that what's wrong is that you're not even a true believer. Because true believers have the capacity to love people, even people that are difficult to love. The word hate that is used in 1 John 4 and 20 is a strong word. It means to hold in very strong dislike, to detest, to bear malice, to dislike greatly. It's that idea, I just can't stand that person. I just wish I could get away from them. Now, it's a little harder for you all. this This is a smaller building. It's kind of hard to get away from someone uh, here in this place. And, and uh, you know, if there's somebody that you really detest, that's a difficult thing. I like to say at Lehigh Valley, we have a little bigger building and we have a few more hallways and exits and things like that. So I'll say, you know, if you find yourself going out one of the other exits so that you don't have to run into brother so-and-so, there might be a problem. There might be something that's wrong in your heart. Jesus said that we are commanded to love one another. Now, we're sometimes guilty of redefining our hatred for someone else with words that are easier to, to, uh, to digest for Christians. We say, well, I dislike them. I, you know, we don't get along. We're, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're different personalities. Uh, we're like oil and water. And, uh, you know, the truth is that your personalities may be different. In fact, there's a high probability that in a church of any size, there's people with different personalities. I think in our family, we have children with different personalities. It's just the way that it is. But we have to be careful. We have to guard against hatred. I'm preaching Sunday morning back home about the root of bitterness that can spring up and defile. And we have to watch out for that root of bitterness. It's a root of bitterness that produces hatred, animosity, hurt feelings uh, to the point that we stop loving someone. So there's a mandate to love. Now, in our text in John 13, there's not only a mandate to love, but there's a measure of our love. So Jesus tells them how much he wants them to love in verse 34. He makes it very plain. It's a powerful statement. He says, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now, that's a high high standard, isn't it? Sometimes when I think about the responsibility of the husband, and I think about myself as a husband, my responsibility is to love my wife the same way that Jesus Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. And I like to say, I got a lot of work to do. I've got a long ways to go until I accomplish that. I, I, I've, I've got some, some changing to do. I, I need to keep on working to be like Christ and to love my wife in the way that God wants me to love. Jesus here says that in the... The the New Testament assembly, we are to be loving one another in the same way that Jesus loves us. Now think about how Jesus loves you. Think about the disciples in particular, since that's who he addressed it to. He spoke to the disciples and he said, the way that I've loved you, I want you to love one another. Jesus, as he was interacting with the disciples, were any of the disciples perfect? Not a one of them. In fact, we read the Gospels and sometimes we laugh at some of the things they say and do, right? Especially Peter. You know, I'm really careful what I say about Peter in the pulpit. Because there's a lot of times that I think I'm a lot like Peter. I think, boy, I'm 
I see more Peter in me than Jesus in me sometimes. So I've got to be careful. Sometimes the disciples even disrespected and mistreated Jesus, didn't they? Sometimes they spoke to Jesus in ways that they ought not to have spoken to their master. But when we think about how Jesus treated them, was Jesus ever hasty? Was he ever vindictive? Was he ever, uh, was he ever rude towards the disciples? No. No, he, he didn't treat them in that way at all. Jesus was patient with them. Jesus was uh, often dealing with things, and many of the things that we see that Jesus was dealing with in the disciples' lives were things that he dealt with over and over and over again in their lives all the way up till the end of his ministry. In fact, when we see how the disciples responded when Jesus went to the cross, we think, it's a failure. The whole thing is a bust. It's all going to fly apart. There's no way this is going to hold together. It doesn't seem like it worked. Jesus was so patient with them. He continually just reached out to them, gently corrected them. Here's another thing that I noticed about Jesus. Did he try to fix everything that was wrong with the disciples as soon as he saw it? No. No, there was a lot of times that things happened and Jesus didn't say anything. Maybe later he'd bring it up and he'd say, Hey, we were walking by the road back there and I heard you guys were talking about something. What were you talking about? And of course Jesus brought it up for a reason. He was going to deal with something. But you know, in that moment on the road, he didn't say, Hey, you guys knock it off back there. Stop talking to each other that way. Like I might talk to my kids. He just let it go. It wasn't the right time. There'd be a right time to deal with it. Isn't it amazing how Jesus dealt with them? In fact, as I study the scriptures and I see how Jesus dealt with his disciples, it gives me great hope because I see how God deals with me in the same way. And I want you to think about yourself. I'm going to think about myself. Think about how Jesus has shown his love for us. Do you know the scripture says, and, and Pastor Byler read it tonight in Ephesians chapter 1, if you're saved, you are accepted in the beloved. That means I am accepted for who I am, the way I am, because of who Christ is. I'm welcome in the presence of the Father because of Jesus Christ. So he accepts me for who I am, but he also is working to change me. He's working to make me what I ought to be. It's not as if he's just overlooking my faults, but he embraces me with all my faults, even while he's patiently working in my life to mold me into his image. I think about how he has forgiven me of all the wrongs that I have done towards him. In Ephesians chapter 4, the scripture says that we should be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Think about what Christ has forgiven you of. Think about all of your sin. Think about your rebellion against God. Think about how even now, after you got saved, you still sin against God and yet you experience the forgiveness of God. Isn't that a marvelous thought, that he would be so forgiving? Aren't you thankful tonight that when you sin, God doesn't just cut you off and say, okay, I'm done with you? No. He's just patient. He's loving. He's kind. Now, he's going to deal with the sin. 
But he doesn't just cut you off. He doesn't just say, well, fine, if that's the way you are, then we'll be done. It's not how he acts. He doesn't avoid you when you've done wrong. Uh, people talk about, well, you know, what is separated between man and God. Well, here's what I want you to picture. It's not God who's turned away. It's us who have turned away. And even as believers, when we turn away from him, the moment we turn around, he's there. Like the, like the father of the prodigal son, he's there waiting, saying, what took you so long? I've been waiting for you to come back. He doesn't give you the cold shoulder and say, well, you're going to have to pray extra hard for the next two days, and then I might let you know that I'm listening. But have you ever noticed how we treat God like we treat other people? Or we expect God to treat us like we treat people? That's not how God acts. That's not what God does. We find ourselves often falling into that trap. Do you know that God even sees the potential in you that you cannot see? He sees what you could become and what He could use you for that you don't even see yourself. That's the kind of God that we serve. And then I think about our God. He is patient with us in our times of failure. He doesn't get flustered. He doesn't yell. He doesn't get upset when we fail. When we're ready, He picks us up, puts us back on our feet, sets us on our way, restores us. That's the kind of God that we serve. Now, remember, we're talking about how should we love one another. We should love one another even as Christ has loved us. So now I want you to take that comparison and I want you to see how we ought to love one another. We ought to love one another in the same way that Christ loves us. So what does this mean for us? Well, a solitary Christian is not living in reality. A, a Christian all by themselves, and, and let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're saved. They're truly saved. They've, they've, they've experienced God's grace. They're a follower of Jesus Christ. They love the Lord, but they're all alone. They're not in an assembly. You know what? They tend to think pretty highly of themselves. They tend to think, I have a very advanced spirituality. In fact, I've met some of those folks, and I think they truly were saved, but they were so advanced spiritually that they felt they just couldn't fit in with any group of people because, you know, I'm way beyond where everybody else is, so I'm just kind of over here by myself. Here's what I want to say about that kind of a Christian. They are not living in reality. They have an opinion of themselves that is higher than it ought to be. We find out that real discipleship is never lived alone. Real discipleship is always lived in a community of believers. And that community of believers is called a New Testament church. Now, I'm going to develop this thought. Because when you spend time with other believers, it's absolutely guaranteed that some of them are going to rub you the wrong way. Some of those believers are going to act in ways or treat you in ways that is going to bother you. It's going to make you uncomfortable. At times, it's going to bring out responses in you that you really wish you didn't know were a part of you. I'll give you a couple illustrations. When I got married, um, 
I was, I turned 26 on our honeymoon, actually. And my wife was 24 years old. So we were a little older when we got married. Not like old, ancient, or anything like that. But, you know, definitely, you know, we weren't, we weren't 19 and, and 18 or something like that. We were older. And I was in the ministry already. And, you know, I, I knew some things about family, hearing, teaching on the family, all that sort of thing. And uh, was a fairly mature man. But, you know, after we got married and we started living in the same house, I started to find out things about myself that I never knew. And, you know, that even got heightened when God started to give us children. And children became added, being added to our family, and I started to see things in myself, in my flesh, that I didn't like, that I never knew were in there, that I needed to deal with. And I like to say at our church... I think that marriage is one of God's tools of sanctification. He uses it particularly to mold us into the image of Christ because when you get close to someone, you start to realize as you're interacting with them that you're not quite as holy as you thought you were. You don't have to tell me that you agree or disagree. It's fine. I know that all of you who are married have gone through this. It's just a part of the process. Now, if you fight against that and you insist, no, I'm always the one who's right. She needs to change. She needs to get right with God. That's a disaster because God brought the two of you together so that you could grow together, so that you could become like Christ together, and God is going to change both of you in that process. I've changed a lot in in the almost 20 years that we've been married. There's a lot of things that I've seen about myself, a lot of things that I was comfortable with before that I'm not comfortable with now, a lot of things that I would have said, that's fine, that now I say, boy, I don't know how I thought that was fine back there. God changed me. Now, let's bring it, that's family, but let's bring it to a church family. There's a brother that used to be in our church, and uh, the reason I can talk about him is because now he's with the Lord. Uh, he passed away several years ago. And Brother Dale, well, if you, you just have to meet him to know what I'm talking about. Brother Dale was unique. He got saved later in life. He was uh, a veteran of the Vietnam War, served in the U.S. Marines, and he always wore a Marine's hat, and he said, hoorah, everywhere he went. And he never stopped being a Marine. He was a karate instructor. And he was tough. And he was arrogant, actually. And because he got saved later in life, he had a lot of rough edges. Before he got saved, he sang in nightclubs. He, he, he was a hard drinker. He was, he was a pretty, really rough guy. I mean, he was in the, the fighting scene and all that sort. That was him. And so he got saved, and God transformed his life. He got baptized, became a member of our church, but he had a lot of rough edges. Brother Dale was one of those guys that if he ever got a microphone on testimony night, he wouldn't stop talking for at least 30 minutes. And and, and usually, you know, you were wincing at whatever he would say because you weren't sure how it was going to go. Usually ended up all right, but... 
It always had me guessing. And, uh, and Brother Dale, when I became the pastor, I've been the pastor at Lehigh Valley for uh, 11 years. On Sunday was 11 years. And shortly after I became pastor, I had to make some decisions, and, and there's a couple things that I needed to deal with and take care of, and, and uh, just some things that transpired, and I made some decisions as the pastor. And I'll never forget the day that he walked into my office and he said, sit down, we got to talk. Now, he's older than me, but I'm the pastor. And there was a part of me that wanted to stand up and say, Dale, you're not going to talk to me that way. But I knew that wasn't the right response in that situation. Maybe with some people that'd be the right response, but not with Dale. And so I said, okay, let's sit down and talk. And so he proceeded to unburden himself of the thing that was bothering him. I mean, he just dumped it all on me, let me know what he think. And, and, and then he said, all right, I want to hear what you have to say. And this is how he dealt with stuff. I was really uncomfortable. And so I said, okay, well, this is how it is. This is what's going on. This is what, and I couldn't tell him everything, of course, because it wasn't his business. But I said, you know, this is why I made this decision. Here's where we're at. And this is, this is what's going on. And he looked at me and he said, all right, well, I don't like it, but you had to make the decision, and you're the pastor, and I'm going to follow you. And then he said, if anybody ever gives you a hard time, you let me know, I'll take care of it. (laughs) And that's exactly the spirit that he had. Now, I would say about Brother Dale, and, and he... You know, there were parts of him that were just abrasive. And some of our folks just winced whenever he came around, you know, because he would just, whatever was on his mind came out his mouth. And it wasn't always, it wasn't always nice. But you know what I knew about Brother Dale? He loved the Lord. And God had changed his life. He loved his family. He loved his wife. And, you know, as uncomfortable as it was sometimes... I needed that relationship with him because I needed to learn to love someone who is very different from me. I needed, to, I needed to give grace to him. I needed to give him room to grow. I needed to be patient with him and at the same time challenge him when, when he needed that challenging. And, and, and what a blessing it is to have that kind of relationship. I was privileged to preach his funeral when he died of cancer. I was privileged to preach his wife's funeral when she passed away just about uh, 18 months ago. And I'm thankful that God brought them to our church and knit our hearts together. We were friends, even though if we, if we didn't know Christ, we never would have been friends with each other. We just wouldn't have mixed. We would have been in different crowds. But this is what I mean. See, in a church, God brings people together who wouldn't normally get together, but God brings them in and he says, okay, now you guys are going to learn to love each other. Fellowship and genuine love being showed to one another is a tremendously important tool of God for sanctification. I believe that people who are saved, who are ignoring the need to be in an assembly, are missing major parts of spiritual development in their life by neglecting the assembly. Things that you will never know Unless you get around other believers and you find out, you know what, I'm not as patient as I thought I was. I, I, I have a problem sometimes with anger. 
Bitterness springs up when I get offended. You know what? I've noticed about myself that I get easily offended when people speak to me in a certain way. These are tools that God uses to help us to see, you know what? I need to be more like Christ. Did you ever notice that from your perspective, you are rarely, if ever, wrong in any disagreement? It's always the other person who is wrong. Now, do you know what that is? That's pride. That's pride. The reason that we never see ourselves as wrong is because, well, I'm not. I mean, why would I say that I'm wrong? And that's pride. That's pride. That's uncomfortable, but sometimes we need to have disagreements. Sometimes we need to not see things the same way so that we can say, hey, let's deal with this. Let's talk about this. I remember one time there was something that happened before a service at the opening of the service, and there was an exchange that took place between me and another man in front of the assembly. And one of my older men, one of the older men of the church, pulled me aside later and he said, Pastor, you know I love you, but I don't like what happened there. That stung. That hurt, but you know what? He was right. And I've never done it again. There was something for me to learn in that situation. He was absolutely right. Now, my initial response was, who do you think you are? I could do whatever I want. No, I can't. I'm responsible to the body. I needed, I needed to learn, and I, I trust that I did learn from that. You, I've, I'm just as prone as any of you to spiritual pride, and when I find myself gritting my teeth when somebody's talking to me about something and I don't like what they're saying, that is exactly when I have to say, okay, slow down and make sure that you're listening because there might be something here. There might be something to hear. When we're part of an assembly, we have opportunities to love people who are different than us, people who have different priorities, people who have different ways of looking at things, people who in their life are making maybe some different choices than we are, and they're not exactly like we are. Did you notice that unity in the New Testament doesn't mean that we're all a carbon copy of each other? God still allows us to have a uniqueness, uh, an individuality that comes out in our life. And God is pleased when he takes all those individuals and he puts them together and allows them to exercise their spiritual gifts within the assembly and truly love each other for who God has made us to be. And the question tonight as we think about the measure of our love is, how do you prioritize loving others in the body, especially those who are hard for you to like? The people that when you get around them, you think, I just don't like them. They They don't make me feel good. Okay, that's the person that God wants you to love. We tend to gravitate. Have you noticed this in our lives? We tend to gravitate towards the people that, make us feel good, that we enjoy being around. And, and even in our church, because there's a number of us, you'll see that you know, people kind of hang together in certain groups, and, and they're always talking with each other. And so there's times when we say, hey, you know, you need to talk to some other folks. There's other people in the church. Don't, don't just get 
uh, in with one person or two people and say, well, I'm comfortable with them, so I'll just focus on my relationship with them. There's other people to get to know as well. There is this mandate for love, and the measure of our love is that we ought to love the way that Jesus loves. But then there's the message in our love in verse 35. And Jesus says it this way, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Loving God's way is something that the world cannot do. And because it's supernatural love and it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, true biblical love should really set apart those who are saved from those who are lost. It ought to be a distinguishing factor of our lives, especially of the way that we relate to one another within the assembly. It ought to be apparent those people love one another. Now, I want to be quick to point out to you that love never calls us to jettison the truth. There's a very comfortable relationship between love and truth when you're walking in the power of the Spirit of God. In fact, the Scripture said about Jesus that in Jesus, mercy and truth are met together. So love and truth, and we're told in the New Testament later in one of the epistles that we are to be speaking the truth in love. That's in Ephesians chapter 4 in the context of how we relate within the New Testament church. We need to be speaking the truth to one another in love. So truth and love have to go together. It's not real love if we ignore the truth and just uh, let people do whatever they're going to do. God never abandons truth in order to show love, and neither should we. But we ought to be careful that we don't abandon love while we're defending the truth. It is important that we maintain the right spirit and the right attitude and the right motivation even as we are proclaiming the truth. You see, it's possible for us as Bible-believing, independent, fundamental Baptists who have standards and, and believe in holiness, it is possible for us to project to those around us an attitude of superiority or of hatred for those who are not like us. And we have to be so careful. We have to be careful about our attitude. We have to be careful about our attitude with one another. You know, not everyone at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church does everything exactly the way that we do in our family. Not everyone has exactly the same standards. And we have to be careful even in our home with our children to teach them what we believe is right, but not to become critical towards those who do things a little bit differently. There's an important distinction there. We ought to love one another. This is especially true when you have people who are getting saved and they're new Christians, and they have all kinds of things in their life that, I mean, let's face it, they're not right. They're learning, they're growing, but they're not there yet, and it's going to be a while till they get there. And we've got to love those people. God wants us to be comfortable with truth, but also with love. And what I want to point out to you in verse 35 is this. Jesus did not say, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye stand for the truth. Now, standing for the truth is mentioned in other scriptures, and it is very important. But Jesus wants us to know that the way that the world 
looking in will see that we are the disciples of Christ, that we are following Christ is if we have love one to another. The sad thing is that many people, when they think of church, they think of hurt. They think of hatred. They think of animosity and arguments and the community looking on is is taking away conclusions from those situations. And I realize those are messy situations. They're hard to deal with. And sometimes you have to stand for truth and let the chips fall where they may. But I am saying this, that we ought to be known for loving one another. As a church, you ought to be known for loving one another, for meeting one another's needs, for caring about one another. Now, the fact that Jesus used in verse 35 a conditional if, if ye have love one to another, means to me that it's not a given that we are just automatically going to love one another. It doesn't happen automatically or magically, or it's not one of these things. Well, I got saved, and now I just love everybody. Wouldn't that be nice if it happened that way? The truth is, yes, the Holy Spirit is going to lead you in that, Yes, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you about that, but you are going to have to choose to love others. You are going to have to sacrifice to love others. And sadly, even as the children of God, there are times when we do not choose to love one another. Now, I wonder in your life if that is true. And I think it probably is true of this church that you have love one for another. The reason I preached this message tonight was not so much as a correction or an admonition. That would not be my place, but rather as an encouragement so that you would be challenged and encouraged as true disciples and as an assembly. Continue to grow in love for one another. Seek ways to demonstrate your love for one another. Sacrifice for one another. Pour your life out for one another so that the community around can say, you know what, those people... There's not all that many people there, but they sure love each other. I've noticed something about Lighthouse Baptist Church. When their members are talking about other members, they're kind. They, they speak in complimentary ways. They, they actually seem to enjoy going to church together. That ought to be our testimony. That ought to be our testimony that we love one another. Tonight, my question for you is, Are you allowing God to develop this love in your life? Are you allowing God to challenge you as you fellowship together and as you walk together? This is what we need. I'm telling you, I don't know if we would have made it through COVID if we didn't have each other. I was so glad that our family loves each other. I I talked to people and they were like, we're going crazy. There's nowhere to go, and we're stuck in the house with the kids. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, my wife said, we're homeschoolers. We're always stuck at the house with the kids. It's just how it is. But it didn't didn't even register to me. But if we didn't have that love as a family for one another, where would we be? You know, we, we did notice during COVID there was a big increase in divorces that took place because people were together more than they ever were and and they just decided we don't really like each other 
and, and we're not going to stay together. That's sad. Churches. Where, I don't know where we would be without our church family after all that transpired. I remember the, the uh, we'd, we'd been live streaming. I'm, I'm almost done, all right? So I'm, I'm going to tell a little story and then I'll be done. We'd been live streaming for uh, hmm, probably about nine, ten weeks by that point. And we came to Easter. And I was talking with my wife and with our staff. And we were trying to come up with something. You know, what can we do? Because we were still not comfortable bringing everybody to assemble. We still didn't have the mechanism to do a parking lot service. It was too cold to meet outside. There's still a lot of trying to figure out what's going on. We're not sure and all that sort of stuff. And, and so we, we, I don't know if I saw somebody else was doing it or if we just came up with the idea, but we decided, okay, we're going to invite the church family to come and drive through the parking lot. And we're just going to give out candy, like um, chocolate, and little gifts for the kids. And so my wife and I were going to stand out front and we were just going to hand stuff to people as they came by, you know, social distance and all that sort of stuff. We had it all planned out. We were going to stay six feet apart and, and uh, we, were going to, we had our masks and all that sort of stuff that we were going to wear, you know, because we were, we were trying to be, be sensitive to what people thought and what was going on. And there's houses around us. We wanted to make sure. So, you know, that Easter Sunday, I preached Sunday morning, live stream, and then we reminded people what time, and the cars started to come through. And it was like up the street and down into the parking lot. There was cars as far as you could see, and people are hanging out their windows and out the sunroof, and people made signs. And then people are coming over. They're like, oh, pastor, give me a hug, shaking hands. I'm like, okay, all right, we see how this is going. Is this okay? Can I shake your hand? I'm like, I'm fine. If you're fine, I'm fine. And so... You know, we, we thought people come drive through, we'll hand them some candy, say hi, bye, goodbye, you know, like 45 minutes later. We were there all afternoon. <laughs> we were exhausted. I had, had, you know, we had services that evening that we were going to live stream. But you know what? When we left, we thought, that's our church family. Those are the people we love. We hadn't seen them in weeks. And we thought we can't wait to get back together because God has given us a love for them. That's the kind of love that we ought to have for one another. And may God continue to build that love. May God continue to unite your congregation because what it means to follow Christ doesn't mean I'm following Christ all by myself. It means we're going together following Christ. We're we're following, pursuing after His will. We are doing God's will together. And it's exciting when we see what God is doing in our lives.